Growing up, there was a popular song entitled, Does Anybody Know What Time It Is? Is there anyone here that uh, has the courage to, either because of age or we don't listen to that type of stuff, remember that song? Yeah, there are a few brave souls. Amen. I think it's kind of timely, and it bears the question, what time is it? Consider how their headlines read just over the past few weeks. 300 young women kidnapped by an Islamic fundamentalist group, stripped away from their families, forced to embrace a faith they may or may not have liked, forced to marry men they never knew. 227 lives lost when a plane simply disappeared without a trace. And when we think of the technology in this day and age, we find that absolutely amazing. Another 298 lives were lost when a plane was shot down over Ukraine. And finally, we see in the news the last three weeks that Israel and Palestine are again engaged in a bloody war, which neither side is winning as far as I'm concerned. And if that is not enough, we read recently where a child was left in a hot car in what appears to be premeditated murder by the child's own father. So I asked the rhetorical question, does anybody know what time it is? When we look at these and at other daily events, can there be any doubt? And as we enter these last days, every one of us either is or will be under attack. Every one of us is or will be under attack by the forces of the evil one. Every one of us will have to go through our own Garden of Gethsemane type experience. All of us will have to face it. No one is exempt. We know we will be challenged. Our strength, our courage, our faith, from the weakest of the weak, And to the strongest of the strong, all of us will have to face it. No one is exempt. We will have moments where we feel discouraged, distraught, distressed, or perhaps even brought to outright despair. All of us will have to face it. No one is exempt. We even come to the point in our lives where we might, just might feel that God has left us that God has abandoned us, or perhaps God has left us orphans. The scriptures tell us all of us will have to face it. Jesus did. No one is exempt. As the Apostle Paul went through his own trials, he reminded us, God has not left us orphans. He has not abandoned us. And he has not left us alone. We will not be the first to have felt these feelings. As Paul reminded us, he preserves stories, stories for our own edification, for our own admonition. So when our hearts are grieved and heavy laden, we can turn to the one source which by faith we know we can trust. Words that have been given to us, preserved to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God breathed the Bible. Stories that will give us hope, comfort, courage. Words that will strengthen our faith. And know that we have not been left orphans. Today are we going to look at just one such story. 
a story about a man who was a slave in a foreign land. Yet he was trusted enough to become the cupbearer of the very king who enslaved him. If you'd like to follow along with me today, you can turn your Bibles and open them to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be going through there today. For those of you who may not be as familiar, you got Samuel's, the books of Kings, Chronicles, and then we have a group of three stories all dealing with the same time period, Ezra, Nehemiah, followed by the book of Ezra. We're going to look at the life of Nehemiah, a layman and trusted servant of the Lord. And beginning with verse 1 in chapter 1, follow along with me if you will. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hilkiah, and it come to pass in the month of Chilcia, the, the 20th year, I was in Shushan, the palace. Shushan, if you're familiar with, was the setting of the book of Esther. That's where she was. And if you remember too, Daniel was also in Shushan when he had the vision of the ram and the goat. Nehemiah goes on to continue that Hanani, one of the brethren, came, and he, a certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem are also broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire keeping in mind that for 70 years the Israelites were in captivity and had the promise to come home. Three times God allowed decrees calling his people out of Babylon. And when we see the condition of, of, of Israel and Jerusalem and the walls around them, we remember too the words of Daniel, predicting that during the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, they would come through difficult times. Continuing is... Nehemiah expounds, he says, It came to pass that I heard these words, that I sat down and I wept, and I mourned certain days, and fasted, and I prayed to who? The God of heaven. Nehemiah mourned because the people of God had not completed the work that God had entrusted to them. I have a question to you today. Do we weep and mourn and fast and pray before the God of heaven because we too have not completed the work that God has entrusted to us. Nehemiah then turns to God in a powerful prayer, one which I decided that it will be our opening prayer. I want you, as I read this, to listen to the words of Nehemiah as he recalls the words that were given through Moses of the promises that God had and the admonitions that he had. Beginning with verse 5, it says, And I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth the covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open that they mayest hear the prayer of the servant which before I pray thee now, day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess their sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house. Never look up when you're doing the reading. 
We have developed, we have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept thy commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou hast commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee that the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses said, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you return unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather you from then and will bring them unto a place that I have chosen to set my name there. Can we say amen? Now these are the servants and thy people who hast thou redeemed us by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. And I pray thee, thy servant this day, grant him what? Mercy. Grant us mercy in the sight of this man. For I were the king's cupbearer. And hence, where I have the inspiration of today's sermon. I want to take a minute to just talk about a little bit about Nehemiah and who he was. Nehemiah was a contemporary of Ezra. He was cupbearer to Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia at the time. Where Ezra was a priest of high lineage, being a direct descendant of Aaron, Nehemiah was a man of no report. But together, God would use both of these men to lead God's people that third and final time, that third calling to come out, to come out of Babylon, to return to Zion, to return to Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a foreigner living in a foreign land who became a cupbearer to its king. And keep in mind what that means. As cupbearer, Nehemiah held a position of great responsibility. It was a cupbearer who had the fine privilege of tasting the wine first keeping in mind that it was a job that you had to get it right the first time because there was no second chance. Keeping in mind to be the cupbearer meant that the common way to, to get rid of a king in those days who was not liked, and history tells us that Artaxerxes had to put down several rebellions even amongst his own people. He was not well liked. And so when Nehemiah had to bear that cup, He literally was putting his life and held the life of the king in his hands. In other words, the king trusted him, but Nehemiah was also expendable in the king's service. His life was expendable. The king's life was not. Having earned the trust and confidence of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah would become one of the king's most trusted advisors. And as we will see, that trust would later be richly rewarded. It was through the prompting of Nehemiah that Artaxerxes actually issued a decree for God's people to go back, to leave Babylon, to go back, to return home. Later, upon the return to Jerusalem, Nehemiah's work was not done. He would become governor of the city. And he proved to be a wise, prudent, and, dare I say, courageous leader. As we read through some of the issues Nehemiah had to deal with, I invite all of us to think about his story. Nehemiah willingly gave up the security, comfort, and ease of palace life to help his people. Unlike Ezra, who came from the long line of priests, who had been trained from his youth to be a servant of the Lord Most High, Nehemiah was a layman, a commoner. But as a dedicated layman, Nehemiah clearly had his priorities straight. 
His priorities were not set upon his own comfort, but upon the care of his people, of God's people. Nehemiah, whose name fittingly means the comfort of Yahweh, was able to motivate and to encourage and to bring comfort to the Jewish people as they went through an arduous task of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. A feat accomplished in just 52 days. Oh, if we were only 52 days away. But Nehemiah was just more than a capable governor of the affairs of the city. He also had a special burden upon the spiritual welfare of God's people. Not only would he stand beside Ezra, who led them in a great spiritual revival, but he would also boldly confront apostasy that appeared even amongst his own people, the very people of God. Oh, there is so much we can learn from the tale of the cupbearer to the king. So many facets of the story of Nehemiah we could examine. So many lessons we can learn. But for today, I want us to focus on the attention of this lesson. Nehemiah faced tremendous opposition as he did the work of God. In fact, Nehemiah had to face six attacks, each distinctively different. Yet Nehemiah successfully dealt with each and every one. And I believe through the example of Nehemiah, we have a timeless lesson that applies to all of us, all of God's people of all of ages, an example of how to deal with a six-fold assault that Satan puts upon our lives. And this is what we will examine today. Because we had lived in time, I'm not going to be able to elaborate on each one of them and go into depth. And so I would invite you perhaps later to go back and, and review. Keeping in mind that as we look at through the eyes of Nehemiah, that he overcame the arrows and darts of Satan and how he obtained victory, not through his own power, but through God, through Christ. As everyone has experienced in warfare, who has been gone through warfare, we are in a spiritual war. And as I read through the list, I'm sure none of these attacks will surprise you. I'm going to lay them out beforehand, so if we don't have time to finish, you will catch. Satan begins his attack first with grief, fear, and doubt. The opposition begins with an internal attack against our human emotions. Later on, if that doesn't work, he then attacks us with laughter and scorn. Opposition moves to an external verbal attack against our emotions, invoking peer pressure. We all want to be liked amongst our peers, do we not? Who wants to stand out and be peculiar amongst the people of the world? And if Satan cannot capture us that way, then he steps up a little bit, and in wrath, indignation and mocking becomes his model. Opposition intensifies, but remains primarily verbal, but now they are veiled with threats of violence. And if that doesn't work, open violence. The opposition becomes physical. And if you've made it this far, now the real danger begins. An invitation to conference, to reason with your enemies. Opposition changes to a false demonstration of goodwill. And if that final one doesn't get you, Satan has saved his best for last. False friends. Opposition becomes personal. Danger from those we think we can trust. Satan uses six different tactics targeting three the three fundamental aspects of human experience. The emotional, the physical, and the relationship. And as we think about the type and nature of each attack and the order in which they come, we see that there is actually method 
to Satan's madness. After all, as the saying has gone, why use an atomic bomb to knock down a door when we have left the door unguarded and open? And so if you're following with me in your Bible, I'm going to pick up now with the first attack. The grief, the fear and doubt, we've already gone through and see how in chapter 1, Nehemiah was concerned and grieved for his people. And we're going to pick up with Nehemiah in 2, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes. Do you think he remembered this event? Do you think it was burned in his mind that he can even recall the year and the day? When wine was before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. And therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? Do you think Artaxerxes could have picked up on that if there had not been trust and a relationship between them? This is nothing. Artaxerxes clearly knew. He said, This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. Nehemiah became dreadfully afraid. Satan's most effective method of causing people's, God's people to stumble is planting the seed of doubt. Satan did it with Eve. He even did it with Abraham when he was given the promise of the seed. And yet Abraham began to doubt and followed the counsel of his wife rather than trusting in God. Satan even tried it with Christ himself if you are the Son of God. And I believe Satan used those exact same tactics when he was in heaven to convince one-third of the angels to rebel against God. As I said before, all of us will have to face this. Not one of us is exempt. So the question is, how did Nehemiah respond? Well, time doesn't permit us to go through every single one, so I'm just going to summarize it quickly. Nehemiah, as we saw in, in chapter 1, he went in prayer. He sought first the counsel of God, confessing his sins, the sins of people, of his people, and then reminding God of the promises that he has already given. And reality is, is we don't need to remind God. He already knows the promises. But I think he rejoices and glories when we remember them. He shared his burden among proven trusted friends and remembered that that trust had to be there before we ever seek counsel. Proverbs 11.14, if you want to jot these down, well, I'm not going to ask you to go to all of them, we don't have time. But in Proverbs 11.14, we are told there is no counsel, the counsel people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Solomon later on continued and said, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And in Proverbs 20, verse 5, the counsel in the heart of a man is like a deep water, but a man of understanding is able to draw it out. And finally, we were reminded in Proverbs 15, 29, that the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of what kind of man? A righteous man. Satan's attack pattern begin with grief, fear, and doubt. Opposition begins with an internal attack against our feelings, against our emotions. Nehemiah reminds us first to seek God in prayer and then to seek counsel among proven, trusted friends. And so when grief, fear, and doubt fails, Satan just sits back and says, well, I tried. I'll just let him go on, right? Yeah, I heard somebody say, thank you. Yeah, Satan starts to ratchet it up a little bit. Said, okay, I didn't... I, 
I caught a lot of you this way, but there's still a few of you out there that I haven't ensnared yet. So let me see what I can do. Dropping down to verse 19, staying in chapter 2. It says, But then Sambalai the Hornanath, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard of it. And they what? They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? We're never laughed at and scorned for being a follower of Christ, are we? And we never allow ourselves to be dissuaded, do we? The question is, is how did Nehemiah deal with it? Well, if you read and continue, you will find that Nehemiah relied on the protection of God, proclaiming in his heart and to his enemies the sovereignty of God, reminding us to remind our enemies that it is God who is in control, not them. We see, too, that there is a threefold conspiracy, a confederacy against those who do the work of God. Sam Belay, a Samaritan leader who was a governor in, in Persia, whose name fittingly, interestingly, means the sin that is quickened and alivened, fitting for his character. Reminded in Psalms, Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength, and we will sing the praise of your power. Later, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I will praise him. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So Satan's attack pattern continues. First, fear and doubt. When that fails, he then steps it up a little bit and tries laughter and scorn. And we saw that with Nehemiah, so the opposition changed. Nehemiah reminds us to remind our enemies that it is God who is in control. And so when laughter and scorn fails, Satan says, okay, maybe I need to quit sending my corporals, and maybe it's time to send the captain or major out. Moving over now to chapter 4, staying with verses 1 and 2. And but it so happened that when Sambalay heard they were rebuilding the wall, that Sambalay was happy and excited and sended flowers and roses and, and food and, and encouragement. Right? No? Huh, I guess I wrote that down wrong, huh? Oh. He was furious and very indignant, and he what? Mocked the Jews. No, no one would ever mock the Jews. No one would ever mock God's people. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones that have heaps of rubbish and stones that are burned? You think Jesus is coming back? Soon, we've heard it before, every generation. How did Nehemiah respond? Well, if you read and continue... Nehemiah responded by setting up watchmen to warn us about the approach of the enemies of God. And he also sent a reminder to God's people that what the enemies do to us, they do also to God. 
Jesus touched upon that in Matthew 25, 40, when he said, And the king will answer and say unto them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of my brethren, you did unto me, whether it was good or whether it was evil. Watchmen. Christ has set up watchmen for us today, each looking in a different direction to warn us of the coming danger, be it from the east, west, north, or south. And even if it comes from within, are we listening to the watchman that Christ has set up? Satan's attack pattern, fear and doubt first, laughter and scorn second. And if that doesn't get, I send my captains out with some wrath, indignation, and mocking. The opposition intensifies. The verbal attack comes with a veiled threat of violence. And Nehemiah responded by simply reminding us that God has set up watchmen to to remind us, to warn us when the enemy comes. If you read on, he actually instructs the men when they go to the wall that they actually would have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Do you have your sword with you? Amen. So in wrath, indignation, and mocking fail, Satan does what? He probably calls another council and says, okay, the corporals failed, the captains failed. Is there a general that will go out? Dropping down to verse 7 in the same chapter, this is how it continues. And now it happened that when Sambalay, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashtonites, have you seen the enemies of God are now multiplying, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were actually being beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them, how many? All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem with the sole purpose of creating confusion. And what did Nehemiah do? Run for the hills? No. Nehemiah reminds that the sound of the trumpet, the God, fights for us. God is in control. The battle is his. It is his, and it has already been won. We simply need to follow the leader. The confederacy happens amongst three nations. A confederacy is an alliance between different parties united with a common goal for an unlawful purpose. Whew, a lot to say, huh? I'm going to get some fun out of you guys somewhere along the way. God's enemies align themselves in the confederacy. Three separate armies, all united in one single purpose. To oppose the work of God that he was accomplishing through Nehemiah. And if that whole idea of three sounds familiar, it should. Because if you remember in Revelation, the city of Babylon is also divided into three parts. David had made the mistake in thinking his own sword could save him. He reminds us that no king is saved by the multitude of an army. The mighty man is not delivered by his own great strength. We are saved by one thing and one thing only. By our king. So Satan's attack pattern continues. We've seen fear and doubt first, laughter and scorn second. When that doesn't work, he ramps it up a little bit. What is it? Wrath, indignation, and anybody remember? Mocking. Excellent. And when that fails, open force. Opposition becomes physical. We're reminded through Nehemiah to remind ourselves the sounding of the trumpet that it is God's battle. The battle is already won. 
and it is God who shall fight for us. And now the real danger comes because if Satan has not been able to deter God's people that way, he actually changes tactics. No, he would never do that. Moving now to Nehemiah in chapter 6, those of you who have few of you who still may be keeping up with me. Starting with verse 1, Now it happened when Stambalet, Tobiah, Gershom, the, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that they had rebuilt the wall, that there was no break left in it, though at the time I had not yet hung the doors and the gates, that Sambalay and Gershom came to me saying, Come, let's meet together. Why can't we all just get along, Right? Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they fought to do him harm. How did Nehemiah know that? I will submit to you that his connection with God, that the Holy Spirit had warned him. And so I met the messengers to them and saying to them, Oh, if you do not have this underlined in your Bible, please do. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And they sent me this message how many times? Four times. Keep that in mind a little bit later. I'm going to give you a quiz to see if you're awake. And I answered them in the same manner. See, Nehemiah understood that you do not parley with the enemy. There is nothing to be gained. When you have the truth and you parley with the enemy, the only one who wins is your enemy because it is you and not the enemy that will compromise. Keeping in mind, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he do? Did he engage in a conversation? Did he say, Lucifer, I still don't understand how you could lead the rebellion, how you could lead cast everybody, take everybody out. Is that what he did? No. He didn't enter into a conversation with him. He didn't debate. Listen to the words that Jeremiah had on this same principle. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 7, and I'm sure the words are going to be familiar when I speak them to you. He says, Thus say the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like what? A stream flowing with water? No, like a shrub in the desert. And he shall not see where good comes, but he shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in the salt of land which is not inhabited. But oh, how I love these next words. Blessed is the man, finish it with me if you remember, who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. <coughs> Satan's attack pattern. Fear and doubt. Laughter and scorn. Wrath, indignation, and mocking. And when that fails, open force. And when Satan can't get us that way, he changes tactics. The real danger begins. The invitation to sit down and come. Let us reason together. After all, we all worship the same God, do we not? We all worship Jesus. Ooh. Nehemiah reminds us to refuse to parley with our enemies. 
And so when the invitation to reason with enemies fails, sad to say, Satan has actually saved his best for last. He completes the portrait of his own character. He entices someone to betray a friend. Staying in Nehemiah chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading very quickly. Starting with verse 10, if you want to attempt to keep up with my. Afterwards, I came to the house of Shemamai, and I probably butchered that name, the son of Deliah, and the son of uh, Medahedabal, and was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Oh, how can you resist such an invitation? to come within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. This man is trying to save Nehemiah's life. Why would he resist him? Indeed, that night they will come and kill you. And what did Nehemiah say? Sure, let's go in. Yeah. Should I, such as a man, should I flee? And who is there that's such that I would go into the temple to save my life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalay had hired him. That would never happen. Hire a prophet to speak to the people of God and it'd be a false message. No, please say it's not so. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin. Fear being sin, so that we might have cause for an evil report, and they may be able to go back to the king and said, that man that you trusted with your life, he buckled under the pressure. And I love this next on how Nehemiah continues in verse 14. He says, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambalay. But notice he doesn't curse the men. Notice what he does curse, however. He says, according to their works, and the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. See, we are told that we should love our enemies. But we never pray for their works. When you curse your enemies, you don't curse them as individuals. But what you do is you curse their works. For those are what are an abomination in the eyes of God. We see from Nehemiah, and if you continue in the study, how Nehemiah, how his relationship with God is what saved him. He was warned ahead of time, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to not trust this man who came with sweet-sounding, smooth words. After all, he was trying to save Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah is to be what? as wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, to love thy enemy, but never, ever trust them. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. So let's review what we have learned so far through the example of Nehemiah. The sixfold progression of Satan's attack. There is method to his madness. First, fear and doubt. 
Opposition begins with an internal attack against our feelings, against our emotions, a fundamental human need. Nehemiah reminds us to seek first God in prayer and then seek counsel among proven, trusted friends. And Satan can't get us with that. Then he comes to us with laughter and scorn. I mean, after all, we all want to be liked by our fellow people, right? No one wants to stick out. Yeah, I know we're supposed to be a peculiar people, but hey, I still want to be liked. Opposition moves now to an external verbal attack to discourage us. And Nehemiah, through his example, reminds us that our enemies, that the Lord is in control, and to remind our enemies of that. When wrath, indignation, and mocking come, the, 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 the opposition intensifies. There's a veiled threat of violence. Nehemiah reminds us that God will set up watchmen to warn us that our enemy approaches, and he tells us how to be prepared. Continue the work of God, but don't go without your sword. Don't go without your Bible. Finally, open force comes. Opposition becomes physical. And it's a reminder to us to sound the trumpet, for it is God who fights for us. And if he is for us, who can be against us? But if we've made it through the first four, we have to be cautious because then the real danger begins. The invitation to conference, the invitation to reason with our enemies. Nehemiah reminds us that not to be bamboozled by the false demonstration of goodwill. We are to refuse to parley with our enemies. And if Satan cannot get us with that, he will get us with false friends. Opposition becomes personal. Danger from those we think we can trust, who seem to have our best interest at heart. Nehemiah reminds us to be as wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, to love our enemy, but never trust them. And so as I bring this to a close, we need to remember that throughout the scriptures, the scriptures is all about who? Jesus. Do you think Jesus had to follow and deal with these attacks? Follow me as we go through the last 24 hours of Jesus. And see how Satan attacked him. See, Jesus' attack actually began with the most lethal first. It began with the betrayal of a friend. Remember, we talked about that's the sixth way he uses us, but he did it with Jesus at the beginning. Jesus was brought to trial and invited to speak with his enemies. And what did he do? He remained silent. Attack number five. You see the direction Jesus is going. Jesus is then spit upon, beaten, whipped. Finally nailed to the cross. Number four, open force. While on the cross, Jesus is mocked. He is ridiculed. He is scorned. He is laughed at. Remember how many times was Nehemiah asked to come down from the wall? Four times. And how many times was Jesus asked to come down from his doing his work? Come, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Holy One of Israel, and then we will believe. Four times, Jesus' enemies stood there and enticed him to save himself. Attacks two and three and two. Finally, when the wrath of God was fully poured out upon Jesus, Jesus who became sin for us, Jesus who became the curse for us, our Lord, our God, our Creator, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he finally succumbs to utter despair. Attack number one. 
On the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And interestingly enough, in Nehemiah, four times he was invited to come down. But there was a fifth message sent to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was accused by his enemies of sending a prophet throughout the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming that there is a king in Judah. An interesting accusation. When Jesus was on the cross, the veil ripped. Matthew records how the graves were opened. And some of the saints went about Jerusalem. I have come to believe that they too are pronouncing that there is a king in Judah. The one true king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, our beloved Jesus. And so in closing, in this grand scheme of things, I ask you, where do you think we are now in the scheme of things with prophecy? Do you think perhaps that we have entered into step five, the ecumenical movement? Come, let us reason together. We all worship the same God. We all worship Jesus. One step remaining. From the weakest of the weak to the strongest of the strong, remember, All of us will have to face it. Not a single one of us is exempt. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a king, an earthly king. But he chose to bear the cup for his heavenly king. Jesus was a cupbearer also for his king, the heavenly king. And he freely chose to bear the cup of the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. Through Nehemiah, God is sending his end-time people everywhere. A message, a message of hope, a message of comfort, a message of victory. A reminder that God has not abandoned us. He has not left us alone. He has not left us orphans. So in these last days, I want to ask each and every one of us, are we ready to be like Nehemiah? Are we ready to be like Jesus? Are we ready to be a cupbearer for our King?